Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this is the weekend that we celebrate the resurrected Christ. You know what? There is no doubt that persecution is a stark reality of living the Christian life. Christian persecution is to be expected. The Apostle Paul warned that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus said that if they persecuted him, they will also persecute his followers. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus made it clear that those of the world will hate Christians because the world hates Christ. If Christians were like the world, vain, earthly, sensual, and given to pleasure, wealth, and ambition, the world would not oppose us. But Christians do not belong to the world, which is why the world engages in Christian persecution. Christians are influenced by different principles from those of the world. We are motivated by the love of God and holiness, while the world is driven by the love of sin. It is our very separation from the world that arouses the world's animosity. Rick, on today's program, we got a lot to cover. We're going to start with Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Winky Madad, a very precarious time in the Middle East, in the nation of Israel, and our good friend, Dr. Richard Schmidt, will come today to talk to us about Christian persecution that's been happening lately in the United States and what will happen in the future when he comes back to take a look at the book with us. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started, Rick, with Ken Timmerman. That's right, Jimmy. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our good friend. He's a contributor to the program just about every week, talking about geopolitical affairs. He's got tons of experience as an analyst and an author. You can find out more about Ken by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, I've got all kinds of things to talk about today from all over the globe, but we'll start right here in America. And uh, this is a story that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on. The Biden administration this week has put out a report on the Afghanistan withdrawal, the, the debacle that we've talked about many times on this program. And they have an interesting person that they're blaming it on. Well, you know, they blame it on Trump. And this is pathetic, Rick. They put out a 12-page unclassified summary of a much longer report explaining to Congress what went wrong with the Afghan withdrawal. And all of us listening here today, all, all of our audience and all of us who watched this on live television that was unfolding, we saw what went wrong. It was that the Biden administration was in chaos. The airport in Kabul was in chaos. We had a, a suicide bomber an American with his sights on that suicide bomber who is not cleared to take the shot, an American sniper who is not cleared by his authorities to take the shot. And now this report is blaming it on Trump. I don't know what kind of parallel universe uh, this administration lives in, but it's frankly pathetic. They said that Trump left them no plan for the withdrawal. And yet the withdrawal was orchestrated by who? by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who was appointed by Trump and carried over by Biden. It's really pathetic to see them do this. They also blamed it on a bad transition process, and they are patting themselves on the back for having done everything right. You had the, the spokesman for the NSC, John Kirby, saying, really, you know, we didn't see any chaos. We didn't see any problems. We did everything right. We just got dealt a bad hand by President Trump. 
you know, I would expect a 10-year-old to come back from school with that kind of excuse. You know, the dog ate my homework, but not from an admiral who is uh, the spokesman for the National Security Council of the United States of America. Well, let's continue on here. And that story, I think, will weave its way through our conversation today as the waning U.S. influence and who is responsible for that. Well, let's take a look at what's going on in Russia right now. A U.S. journalist arrested for espionage. Now, I know this is a world that you have dabbled in or you have been a part of. Can you tell us what you know about this story and what's going on in Russia right now with this journalist? Well, Evan Gershevich is a 31-year-old reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's done some very good work on the ground uh, trying to interview Russians on their economic situations. Uh, But, you know, the Russian government has warned him several times, and they warned all reporters, don't do this kind of thing. We consider this to be, I don't want to use the word unpatriotic because an American is not supposed to be patriotic in Russia. But this is something that we consider illegal and treasonous. Frankly, I think uh, the Wall Street Journal editors who are dealing with Evan uh, Gerskovich and giving him these orders on the ground to go to Yekaterinburg, which is a military manufacturing hub in the Russian Federation, I think they were a bit irresponsible. Certainly when I was in that kind of situation many years ago in Syria, but also in Iraq more recently, I would wait to file things that I knew would anger the government where I was until I was out of harm's way, until I was either out of the country or in a place where they couldn't get me. So I'm a little bit uh, upset with the Wall Street Journal editors. I think they could have protected their reporter a little bit better. He never should have been taken uh, hostage, but that's what he is now, a hostage. And now it's going to fall in Biden's lap to deal with it. Another consequence of the U.S. withdrawal from the world scene that was potentially started there in Afghanistan is the fact that who is going to replace the United States in that vacuum that was created by our departure. And it looks like China, and we've talked about this many times on this program, but they have accelerated their ascension as a world power and a peacemaker. And there is no story that more exemplifies that, at least that I could see, is the fact that they have manufactured this peace with Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's amazing. Could you talk to us about that story a little bit? Well, it's quite an achievement, actually, for the Chinese, and it's something that never should have happened. And it only happened because, as you mentioned, there was a U.S. power vacuum. We have been pulling out of the Middle East, and it's not just Afghanistan, uh, it's Iraq, but we're pulling out diplomatically as well. And here we were in a position when President Trump left office of maximum pressure on the government in Tehran. They were really feeling the pinch. The Saudis felt supported Uh, They had purchased $100 billion of weapons from the United States during that first visit by President Trump uh, to Riyadh in uh, May of 2017. And they had an excellent relationship with the United States, despite the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident who was actually working with Qatar against Saudi Arabia, who was brutally hacked to death in a Saudi consulate in Turkey. Uh, Despite that, they had a good relationship. Now, Biden comes into office and he castigates the Saudis from day one. He criticizes them from day one. He essentially calls the crown prince of Saudi Arabia a murderer. He releases an intelligence document that says basically, you know, we kind of think that the people who killed Jamal Khashoggi had to report to the crown prince, but we can't prove it. We just think that must be the case. And he went on to alienate. Biden went on to alienate the crown prince and the rest of the Saudi leadership. Well, ultimately, this is the result of that. You get them, you push them into the arms of the Chinese. First, they went to the Russians. Then the war happened. So now he has pushed them into the arms of the Chinese. And it is the Chinese who are bringing the Saudis and the Iranians together. 
Interesting analysis, Ken, and that's something for us to think about for sure. Well, my final question, and this is another concerning signal coming out of the Biden administration and the government, is uh, that the fact that their approach on Iran being a nuclear power may have changed. Can you tell us why people might think that? Well, General Mark Milley, again, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went to the House of Representatives last week, and he made a statement which just had everybody floored. He said the U.S. remains committed as a matter of policy, quote, that Iran will not have a fielded nuclear weapon. Up until last week, U.S. policy was the U.S. will not allow to have a nuclear weapon. The difference is extremely significant. The Israelis pointed it out immediately. If you talk about a fielded nuclear weapon, you're talking about a warhead sitting on top of a missile. That means something that can be fired in a matter of hours at most. That is a very, very dangerous place to be. Milley also kind of extended the timeline of when he said Iran could have nuclear weapons. He said they could have enough material within a couple of weeks to build a warhead, but it would take them two months, possibly more, to actually build the warhead. Most other analysts that I know, including in the intelligence community, including at the IAEA, including in Israel, believe Iran has already built the non-nuclear components of a nuclear warhead, and it would not take them two months to build a warhead. So this is a very, very big shift in what I think you have to say is official U.S. policy. He is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So this is not a statement that Mark Milley made by accident. Now, he tried to walk that back, Rick, afterwards, but the cat was out of the bag, so to speak. Again, irresponsible. It shows you we have an administration, as we did with the Obama administration, where it is safer and better to be a mullah in Tehran building a nuclear weapon than to be a Jew in his capital building an apartment. Hmm. Very alarming indeed, and a potentially significant change in policy that should concern us all. Well, let's move away from geopolitics, and it is Easter time, and as we celebrate what I believe, and I know you do as well, was the most important event in all of history, the death, burial, and then, of course, resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would love to give you an opportunity not only to give our listeners an Easter greeting, but I know you have done work around the world with Christians that are facing persecution. If you could give us an Easter greeting, and talk about that, I would be grateful. Well, I I have uh, done work around the world, especially in northern Iraq, in Amman, Jordan, and other places in in Lebanon with uh, persecuted Christians, uh, refugees from Iraq, people fleeing jihadi Islam. And this is the time of year that gives all of us hope. This is our hope, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, It is what keeps us alive as Christians. Uh, Without the resurrection, there isn't Mm. any Christianity. Uh, And right now is a time for us, I think, to have special prayers for the persecuted church, especially for people in northern Iraq, but not just prayers. They need our money. They need contributions. They need our political support. It's very important. There are scarcely 150,000 Christians left in Iraq today. There used to be one and a half million before the Iraq war in 2003. Uh, One-tenth of that population remains. So they really need our support. Our, our financial support, our moral support, our spiritual support. Appreciate the message and appreciate the work you do there with those persecuted Christians in Iraq. Ken, thank you for being on the program. Happy Easter, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. The Lord is risen indeed. God bless. Indeed, he is risen. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, precarious position in the Middle East and Israel with David Dolan and our Middle East News Update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Conflict soars today in Israel as the national defense trades rocket fire with Hamas terrorists. Hundreds of Palestinians armed with clubs and fireworks barricaded themselves in Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque as Passover began. Israeli police detained 350 agitators. Uncharted Ministries' Tom Doyle says believers face pressure on all sides as Ramadan, Passover, and Good Friday overlap. Pray Christians can remember the Lord's sacrifice and resurrection in peace this weekend. Meanwhile, tension simmers just below the surface in Kenya. Anti-government protests injured more than 400 people in the last two weeks and killed three. A fourth year of drought means crops and livestock are failing. But believers can't buy food in the market because it's too expensive. Kenya Hope recently increased its food aid to local churches. Pray for perseverance. Believers continue gospel work even though conditions keep getting worse. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is the portion of our program where we have our Middle East news update. We've talked about all of the Middle East, but we have a particular focus on Israel. And to do that with us this week is Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. Well, Dave, so much to get to this week. We may even have to go a little long as we talk about this. So first of all, if you could just give us an overview of what has taken place. We know it all centers around the Temple Mount and activities and things that took place there the middle of this week. Can you talk to us about what happened and then now what is happening as a result of that? Well, of course, Rick, you'll recall that last week I mentioned that even though the first two Fridays of Ramadan had been fairly peaceful ones, Hamas was calling for more upheaval and more resistance to the occupation and all that sort of stuff, and in particular was putting out calls for Palestinians to go up and defend Al-Aqsa Mosque from alleged uh, Jewish attempts to take it over stories that a paschal lamb would be slaughtered up there, which is nonsense. There's no way you can smuggle a lamb up onto the Temple Mountain. The police weren't going to allow that. Nevertheless, we did have uh, dozens of Palestinian young men answer that call by gathering up stones, uh, broken bottles, knives, and uh, fireworks. And they barricaded themselves in the Al-Aqsa Mosque itself in one of the side rooms and refused to leave when the guards came to lock the doors at night. It's supposed to be locked every night. That was Tuesday evening. And the Israelis tried for hours, security forces, to get them to come out peacefully. 
they refused. Eventually, the order was given to go in after them, and we all saw the pictures, the explosives that went off from the Palestinians. They threw their rocks and other things at the police. A couple were injured. Several of the Palestinians were injured. And, of course, the next morning, that went all over the world. And the Muslim world went ballistic. Iran condemned it. The Turkey condemned it. Egypt, Jordan, uh, the Arab Gulf states, the UAE that made a peace treaty with Israel recently, Jordan, on and on. And so again, Wednesday night, uh, the same thing happened, although this time the end was a little more peaceful, but the forces had to, again, the Israeli forces go in. And why did they feel that? Well, because these guys were planning the first thing the next morning, to use all these things against the Jewish civilians that would be coming up there to pray. And, you know, it would have started an even larger clash. So the police felt they had no security officials, you know, made the decision, but to go after it. Well, of course, that was met by rocket barrages from both Gaza and Lebanon. And as everyone should know by now, the assault from Lebanon was the largest by far since the 2006 Hezbollah-Israel war that lasted several weeks. Over 35 rockets fired within just a couple hours. Only one struck uh, an Israeli home, thankfully, and a car and a business were damaged, but to most of them were taken out by Israel's Iron Dome system or they were landing in open areas. But that was an unprecedented move. It wasn't clear at first if Hezbollah had done it. If that had been the case, we would be in another full war with Hezbollah, which is very significant, obviously. It was determined that Hamas, which has branches in South Lebanon in the refugee camp near Sidon and some others, had fired these rockets. But all Israeli officials have said no way they could have gotten away with firing dozens of rockets over several hours without Hezbollah at the very least looking the other way, if not ordering it. And there is evidence that Iran had already cleared this barrage from the north. Then more rockets came from the south. Then, of course, the IDF responded by striking Hamas targets first in the Gaza Strip and then uh, Thursday morning in Lebanon itself. The opposition said it wasn't uh, strong enough. Members of Netanyahu's own government said that, to Ben Gavir in particular, the security minister said, I may have to leave the government. This is a weak response. Smoltrick, the other controversial minister, said similar things. So the situation is a muddle, but uh, Rick, the reserve Air Force pilots, uh, many of whom were on strike over the judicial situation, were called up, uh, many of them on Friday afternoon, along with other reserve units, indicating that a much fuller uh, conflict could lie ahead. It just really depends, as Israeli leaders have said, on whether the uh, rocket fire stops, whether the Palestinian incitement stops. But of course, meantime, I mean, I could go on. There was uh, riots in many cities. There was uh, all sorts of things happened. An apartment was struck in Cedar Road by one of these rockets on uh, early Friday morning and on and on. And then, of course, there's been some terrorism. So it's been a very, very difficult week. And of course, it's Passover, Ramadan, and on Sunday, Easter, all coinciding. And so it's already a heightened state of alert in the country, but it should be a time of worship and, uh, you know, prayer and feasting and all of that. Instead, people are once again heading to bomb shelters. Well, Dave, unfortunately, this is an all too familiar story. This has happened. And like you said, you talked about it last week that this would potentially happen. Well, the U.S. is at least saying that Israel has the right to defend itself and is giving Israel some latitude on the international stage, aren't they? 
They are, and that's good, but the overall reactions have been very negative towards Israel. China issued a condemnation and, by the way, offered itself to be the negotiator between the Israelis and Palestinians instead of the United States. Uh, The Turkish president strongly condemned Israel's, quote, storming of uh, the Temple Mount, and that was the term that one heard in most of the news reports. Uh, I monitored quite a few of them, the BBC and CNN and many others. And they were all saying Israelis either raided or stormed the Temple Mount. Well, that's absurd. Again, the security forces were up there for hours beforehand trying to talk the leaders of this group into peacefully leaving, and they refused, and that's what started the whole thing. So they were already there. They weren't storming anything. But Turkey's leader, Erdogan, I mentioned, uh, made a phone call on Friday to the Iranian president, Raisi, and in it he basically said, we've got to increase our resistance and vigilance against the Zionist plots. A similar statement was made by the Hezbollah deputy leader saying we fully support the Palestinians and their resistance and all of this. And uh, it went on and on. But very, very dramatic uh, reactions. But the U.S. did make a strong pro-Israel statement and did indicate it would veto any Security Council resolution aimed at Israel. And, Rick, again, just the absurdity of this. uh, Hamas had been trying for days, weeks, months, like they have for years, and they've succeeded several previous times to start major trouble, focusing on the supposed Jewish plot to immediately take over the Temple Mount, which, by the way, one of the leaders said it must remain purely Islamic. That was uh, a Hamas statement on the violence. And by the way, Rick, that statement came in support of a terror attack on Friday afternoon in the Jordan Valley that left two sisters in their 20s dead and their mother struggling for life Uh, They are British-born. They lived near Efrat, near Hebron, and uh, their father was driving a separate car just ahead of them when the ladies' car came under fire just after noon prayers ended on the Temple Mount is when the attack took place. Israeli forces, of course, scoured the area, helicoptered the dying mother to hospital, and uh, very importantly, the Prime Minister, Netanyahu, and the Defense Minister that he said he would fire two weeks ago, Gallant both went to the scene together, issued a joint statement of condemnation against the attack, and Netanyahu called him Defense Minister Gallant during a statement that they made. So apparently he's reversed his decision to fire him. And, uh, you know, Rick, I said a couple weeks ago, you asked me what would bring this judicial reform crisis to an end or at least put it on hold. And I said at the time, probably only another major war would have the ability to do that. It seems like uh, it's having some of that. But of course, we still have had very strong statements from opposition leaders against Netanyahu. We have the head of the Russian party, um, Lieberman, uh, say the IDF response has been way too weak. We need to do much more than this. So uh, it's still a crisis situation, but at least uh, the top leaders of the government seem to be coming together over it. But, Rick, we had several other terror attacks. We had an Israeli soldier shot north of Jerusalem. It didn't kill him, but they caught that terrorist. So uh, they're expecting in Israel far more trouble ahead. Whether this will escalate into another major war or not, we don't know. But both Hamas and Israeli leaders say they don't want that. But of course, what justified 
anybody, let alone Hamas, from firing uh, over 30 rockets at Israeli civilian centers due to this, quote, storming of the Temple Mount, which is not what happened. So, I mean, you know, we see them really struggling for excuses to start major activity. And, of course, the key is Iran. If they really want a war now, if they want this to go much further, they obviously have far more agents than they need to provoke it and to launch it. And again, the fact that this has been a two-front attack this time, very unusual. We haven't seen that, uh, boy, since the second uprising, so since 2002, 2003. So this is very serious, Rick. Of course, obviously a time for great prayer. Absolutely, David. A time for prayer. And we are called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Israel. Well, David, so much going on. If you could, we're going to have to take a break right now because we're up against a hard break. But if you could, could you come back in just a minute to talk to us more about what is taking place in Israel? I'd be happy to, Rick. Well, we do have to take a break. And when we come back, I want to ask David if other countries perceive this protest in Israel as a sign of weakness and a time to attack. We'll do that when we come back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this is the weekend that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did exactly what he said he would do, and uh, he did it on the first day of the week. You know, when you look at the biblical story, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, Sunday. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 9. Luke chapter 24. John chapter 20. Jesus' resurrection is most worthy of being celebrated, and that's what we're doing this weekend. Well, in this next half hour, we're going to finish up with Dave. Winky Madad's coming. He's going to talk to us about the situation on the Temple Mount, and Dr. Richard Schmidt will be here talking to us about persecution of believers in the United States and uh, where we're headed with that. But let's, uh, Rick, you and I have talked about the protest in Israel leading up to a perception of weakness by other countries. I'm wondering what's happening now, if that has a lot to do with it. We've talked about it over the last month or so, this political protest crisis that's going taking place in Israel. 
And we've wondered, would it send signals of a weakness in Israel, of a divided country, and maybe a chance for its enemies to attack? Leadership in Iran was even quoted as saying something similar. They said Israel is disintegrating faster than than even we thought. And so just very interesting. Is this a scenario where Israel's enemies are taking advantage of what they perceive as a weakness? Oh, clearly it is, Rick. And there is clearly great internal division and tension in Israel. There's no question about it. But that was their supreme leader that made that statement, Khomeini, in a speech he gave on Friday, marking uh, the Friday of Ramadan. He said, I predicted uh, in 2015 that the Zionist regime would last maybe another 20 or 25 years. Now, he said, I think it won't last more than another five years because it's tearing itself apart. Its leaders are all saying that it's crumbling. He said that it's about to disappear. Well, that's, of course, greatly exaggerated. But we do have statements along those lines. We had Ehud Barak this week issue a tweet that called Netanyahu a fanatical leader. Uh, quote, if the coup succeeds, that's the judicial, you know, changes, he calls a coup, messianic dictatorship that possesses nuclear weapons and fanatically wishes for a confrontation with Islam centered on the Temple Mount will be established in the heart of the Middle East. Well, this was Netanyahu's defense minister from 2009 and 2013. And by the way, Rick, you may recall, he was the one really that vetoed Netanyahu's 2012 plan to attack Iran's nuclear program. Uh, Netanyahu said, we've got to go now. We can't wait until they get much stronger. They're building up their military. They're building up their forces in Lebanon. And of course, they started in Syria after that. Uh, But this is ridiculous. I mean, it's so many on the left uh, have just gone bonkers, frankly, over these judicial reforms, in my opinion. I mean, they are serious. I think Netanyahu did make some serious errors in the way he introduced it. I think they went too far. He should have had discussions first with the opposition and on and on and on. But nevertheless, he's certainly not <laughs> wanting a nuclear war in the Middle East because he wants to take over the Temple Mount or something. And by the way, there was criticism of Barack for apparently revealing or confirming that Israel has nuclear weapons. Everyone knows that, of course. But the tweet was later deleted. But a very very tense situation on the on the political side remains but we're going to see in the next few days whether these reserve soldiers and air force pilots do show up for their call to duty it appears uh, that they will and that again there's nothing that unites israelis they can tear each other apart but when somebody else from the outside comes in and says we're going to do it for you uh, they tend to focus on that and and get together as best they can Dave, any thought? We tend to see these flare-ups and these clashes take place, and sometimes they go right to the edge, then they back off and normalcy returns. But one of these times, it could turn into a full-scale military clash. Do you know where this one is headed, or do you have an opinion on where this one might be headed? Well, definitely, Rick, this is the most serious military situation that Israel's faced since 2006. Even though we had the 2014 war with Hamas, Uh, That was just Gaza and Israel. This is, as we've been talking about for years, this is the extension of the war to another war front. And as Israeli leaders have pointed out, there is no way 
that Hamas could have fired so many rockets over several hours, and then they fired some more on Friday, and other things have been happening. Israeli forces are massing at the border, and people are near their bomb shelters, etc. But no way this could have happened without Hezbollah allowing it. No way Hezbollah would have done that without Iran's clearance. So Iran is edging ever closer into the center of this conflict. And uh, in this case, not edging, they, they took a big leap this week, in my view, Rick. So this is a very serious escalation. Hopefully things will calm down and the Israelis certainly don't need a war on top of their internal struggles and everything else going on right now. And of course, it is the three religious holidays here. The last thing they want is bombs going off and people being shot at and killed and rockets coming down from the sky during the Passover week and Easter weekend and and Ramadan. So sad, but uh, we'll just have to see. It's really, in my view, Rick, up to Iran. Turkey's backing them and others up to Iran, whether this escalates or whether it calms down. Well, as we said earlier, pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem now more than ever. Well, let's switch gears just a little bit as we finish off this segment with you, Dave. I'd like to talk about Easter. Now, we know Easter reminds us of the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a time that we remember that. We remember that he is risen. I would like, if you could, David, maybe if you'd like to share an Easter message with our listeners, but also maybe you spent many years in Israel, over 30 years in Israel. Do you have any special memories of experiencing Easter in Israel? Well, Rick, contrasting memories. I, uh, of course, worked for CBS for many years, and under that role, I was often in the churches in uh, Jerusalem in particular, the Holy Sepulchre, and other Christian places uh, covering Easter and the services and all that. I found that rather depressing, frankly. It was just ceremonies and, you know, a lot of smoke in the air and (laughs) flashes of light. But I also was able to cover Easter services at the Garden Tomb, which I think is the likely site of the resurrection. And to be standing there, I told your late father this, to be standing there on Easter morning looking at the face of the tomb and the open uh, area there and remembering what happened uh, there was always my greatest joy. You know, the Lord said that he would be crucified. Uh, His disciples failed to understand at first what he was talking about, that he was going to be killed. How could the Messiah be killed? Is that going to bring the kingdom to Israel? Some of them asked. They were puzzled, and they still didn't understand when he rose from the dead completely, as we have written in the scriptures. But finally, they understood this was his triumph. This was the Messiah's ultimate triumph over death over Satan, and the sign of all signs that the rest of us who've been promised resurrection and eternal life, who trust in him, are going to receive the same thing. That's repeated all over the scriptures, and uh, to be at that site where it took place was always a thrill. You know, I miss being in Jerusalem. Even in its tensions, it had a, a life and a spark to it that you just couldn't equal in other places. And This Easter, I won't be there, but uh, I'll be thinking of it and remembering it. And I do wish you and all of your listeners a a blessed Resurrection Sunday. Uh, He is risen, and you know he is risen indeed. Wonderful message, David. Thank you so much for all you do to keep our listeners informed of what's going on in the world, give them a proper perspective, and also what you do to share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David, thank you so much. You're welcome, Rick. God bless.
Rick, as we examine the current events and what's going on in Israel, it is clear to see that we are getting closer and closer to that battle that will take place. It's talked about in Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, and Psalm 83. And I think we're right right up next to it. And before that, the rapture of the church takes place. Well, we focus on Israel. And anybody that listens to our program, a lot of folks have been to Israel. We do have an understanding and we know what it feels like. We know what it smells like. So listening to Dave and, of course, listening to Israel Madad, we get an, an idea of what is going on there in the land and where this struggle for control, as Zechariah talks about it in Zechariah chapter 12, as the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Let's talk to Winky Madad. Winky Madad joins us. He's a good friend, longtime guest of the program, former mayor of Shiloh, a man who's in the know in Israel, politically, historically, also a man lives in the area of Judea and Samaria. Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you again, once again, for having me on. Winky, Hak Sameach, I believe that's the correct thing to say while Passover is going on, is it not? Hak Sameach, or even Moadim Lesimcha, days of uh, for joy. Winky, uh, there's so much going on politically, and even now with Israel's neighbors, uh, I want to talk to you about that. But before I do, whenever I get a chance to have you on the air during Jewish Feast, I want to just ask you a little bit about what you do for that feast, for Passover at this time, and maybe just a little bit about what it means to the Jewish people. Well, this year, in fact, you've caught me at a place called Efrat, uh, where I've been guest of uh, a second cousin of mine. You know, the Passover Seder, or the the festive meal, the ceremonial festive meal, is also one in which anybody who wants to can come and partake. And this year, instead of being uh, at our own Seder or with our uh, immediate family, we're down here in Efrat. And I, I just want to tell you, we had two other guests. One was a woman, a Brazilian and another is a family who arrived here in 1980 from Hungary. And so we had a sort of uh, collection of the exiles, if you want to call it that, at our Passover Seder table. With uh, I hope everybody by now knows, after so many years, that you and I, and, and, and I am your father, late father, discussed there's matzah, the unleavened bread, there's maror, uh, the bitter herb, uh, four glasses of wine, at least. Uh, and uh, a few other foods that give a sort of historical recollection of being slaves in Egypt. And of course, in Judaism, slavery is not only physical, but could be spiritual or even intellectual. Uh, And so these are the things that we bring to the table uh, at this time. Winky, I've been involved in several Passovers, and it is a very emotional and somewhat joyous telling as you eat, because we all enjoy eating, but it's a way to tell the story. And I've been involved in that, and it's a time where many people come together. Now, uh, there's been a lot going on in Israel over the last several months with these judicial overhauls and the elections and the different things that have happened. Has the Passover changed the mood there in Israel? Are people using this as a time to possibly come together, or is that being too optimistic? I'd say I wouldn't be too optimistic. But there has been pressure from the masses 
that we could use uh, this holiday time to sort of slow down the acrimonious debate. Even Mr. Uh, Netanyahu, our prime minister, has suspended the continuation of the legislative process and several of the judicial reform legislation. But now as uh, we come out of the holiday, the first days of the holiday, and we begin to see the reactions of the Arab world and their normal, unfortunately, which is abnormal by me, uh, reactions at the Temple Mount, is, again, we're being pressured from the inside and, again, the outside. So it's, very, it's always very difficult to be Jewish in this world and to be an Israeli also. And so, But we have hope that both things are sort of under relative control. And then, Winky, I'll continue to move on. And you mentioned earlier about the Temple Mount. There's, of course, unfortunately, like you said, it's an all-too-normal incidents here. We have Ramadan going on. Passover just began. It looks to me, and I'd like to get your perspective on it, but it looks like people were intending to make trouble to then blame the IDF for trying to contain that trouble. And of course, then that sends a message out to the whole Arab and Muslim world that there's a storming of Alaska Mosque. So this is kind of the narrative that's been put out there. Is that how you see it? And and then how is this going to play out? How is Israel uh, going to quiet it down, hopefully, if that's what they're going to do? Or are they going to have a military answer? Well, you know that I, I, I really honestly do not think myself as the most smart person in Israel. I am sure there are many other people with uh, greater intellectual and imagination faculties. And yet every single year uh, over the past few years uh, that we've discussed this issue, I always point out that the barricading inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque is known beforehand. They have a, uh, they've renewed some sort of uh, Middle uh, Ages custom of sleeping over in the mosque overnight during the last uh, uh, few days of, of, of Ramadan, which are coming up. And uh, what they do is they, they bring in fireworks, stones, Molotov cocktails, and a few other nonviolent implements of religious worship. And then in the morning, they refuse to come out, and uh, you see these pictures. If you do, uh, I'm not exactly on my Twitter right now, but I usually try to gather these little film clips, and you see them shooting off a potentially harmful weapons of fireworks and Molotov cocktails from inside the mosque. And then when the police come in after two or three hours of asking them to come out and, and, and using force to do so, it's labeled, as you said, an invasion of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, infringing upon religious worship. When the only people whose religious worship is infringed up there are Jews, Christians, and others who have uh, time limits and other limits on their worship at the Temple Mount, even though we know it's holy for all the faiths. And we've never been able to, even though we know it's going to happen every single year, uh, we're always caught on the short end of the stick, and I, I find that very unfortunate and, and, and amazing. 
Winky, like you said, the dynamic of taking rocks inside the mosque and tubes of empty fireworks that have been shot out the mosque, not in celebration, but just as a provocation, there's certainly something that doesn't seem right. Well, uh, as a Jewish person, I know you have advocated for a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount and have spent quite a bit of time yourself up there and actually taking other people up there. Are you going to be able to continue to do that going forward throughout the end of Passover? Well, I am scheduled on uh, Sunday morning at 9 a.m. to lead an English language group up there. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out or how long we're going to have to wait to get up there, but I will be traveling to Jerusalem from my home uh, on Sunday morning. And therefore, I hope uh, at least we'll be able to do that very simple, plain walk around, everybody murmuring under their breath either psalms or prayers, which the police over the past few years now have allowed as long as there's no obvious elements of prayer like prostration or other acts, and or singing, for example. And we do that uh, under those restrictions and limitations in order to keep people aware that the Temple Mount is first and foremost a Jewish holy site where the two temples were erected, where Jews worshipped for over 800 years in two different periods, and where every Jew turns even today in prayer. We always face Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, so it's not something uh, ancient or mythological And this is very much part of Jewish worship. And I hope that uh, the Arabs will not interfere, or the Muslims will not interfere, and the Israeli government and their police will be as much forthcoming as possible to give us that freedom of at least entrance and respect for the holy site. Well, Winky, we certainly appreciate your commitment. We appreciate you coming on the program and talking about these issues with us. We wish you, as I said earlier, Haksameak, a happy High Holy Days as you celebrate Passover. Thank you very much. A Haksameach to you and a Haksameach to all those listening. Thank you very much for being with us. Well, having Israel Madad and David Dolan brief us on what is taking place, giving us information. Israel Madad being in the city of Efrat where uh, an attack took place. Uh, I do think that, uh, and as we are watching what's taking place between Lebanon, the Palestinians, uh, Gaza Strip, the Prime Minister making major decisions, I do believe that we're on the cusp of a war, the new war, as you will, not like World War II, but I think this could be the beginning Uh, of where we are leading up to Ezekiel 38, folks, and we need to stay on top of that. Well, the program today, as we focus on Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection Day, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I really think it should be all year long, not just one weekend a year. But uh, I felt as the body of Christ is coming under attack by what I would term a woke religion, a religion that is anti-God. I wanted to have our pastor, and I affectionately refer to him as America's pastor, Dr. Richard Schmidt. He's a former sheriff of Milwaukee County in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a pastor of a church in Union Grove uh, Baptist Church, and he's a prophecy teacher. Welcome to the program, Dr. Schmidt. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yes, sir. And, you know, I love having you on the program. You're very knowledgeable. But the reason today is for us to focus 
And I believe that we as believers in the United States are going to really see persecution, don't you? Well, absolutely. There's been some horrific things that have recently taken place. If we go to what just took place in Nashville not too long ago, we have a individual that actually identified as transgender that uh, literally killed six individuals. But unfortunately, this type of behavior is not an anomaly, but it's becoming more and more prevalent in our society. It's very interesting that uh, Pew Research brought out that 69 times in the first three months of 2023, Hmm. there's been uh, 69 attacks on churches or Christian organizations. That's a 288% increase from what took place last year. So we're having this massive increase of God's people being fronted out, being attacked, being persecuted. The main reason for the attacks that are coming out is very specifically because the Christian community is standing against things that are pro-Bible, pro-God, and the worldview of those that are not embracing that are finding the Christian community to be unacceptable to the point where violence is taking place against God's people. So these incidents, which have multiplied in a dramatic way in the first part of 2023, it's not something that we don't expect to happen as we get to what Second Timothy 3.1 calls these perilous times that will occur before the coming of Jesus Christ to take us home at the rapture. So what's taking place? Uh, we're watching uh, the transgender issue, which is one that's really coming to the mm-hmm. forefront with uh, mass shootings that are taking place. Now, again, that particular community, according to uh, the Williams Institute Research Center, is only 0.6% of the United States population. But yet uh, there's more and more incidents of shootings and violence and persecution against Christians that are rising as this increases. So are these things uh, to be considered out of the ordinary? Well, I really don't think so, because if we go to Romans chapter 1, it makes it very clear that as the mind becomes more degenerate, as people go further and further away from God's Word, he gave us three things that would happen uh, progressively as the mind of humans technically get worse. The first thing he says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. Uh, the, the basic number one thing that God allows to take place when people reject God's word, when they go to what we could call a woke-type society that we're seeing today, uh, they're going into idolatry. They're going away from God, and he says he gives them up to uncleanness, and they mm. begin to worship things they shouldn't. Second thing God says, if, they're, if they still progressively are rejecting him, he gives them up to vile passions. Well, what are those vile passions? Uh, again, Romans chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that uh, men leave men, ladies leave ladies, and all of a sudden you have uh, same-sex intimacy. We have, of course, the marriage issue now with uh, uh, same-sex marriages being pushed. And God then says the third thing is if they keep going down this, they don't get right with God, then we get to where we're at today, which is Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where God gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So the violence we're seeing from 
uh, whether it's the LGBTQI plus community, whether it's, which includes uh, uh, the transgender issue like we just saw in Nashville, whether we see things with the abortion issues or other things that are just absolutely against God's word when we look at the sanctity of life, these things are exponentially increasing. The violence is getting worse. The persecution against God's people, uh, I firmly believe, is going to keep increasing. And uh, Dr. Schmidt, let me just ask you this. As a pastor, what do you think? I mean, I see a lot of debate. I see a lot of churches bowing to the woke society. I see everybody bowing, especially the Christian community. What would be your take? What would be your message to your church on how are you going to react and how do you encourage the body of Christ to react to the woke community? Well, just this past Wednesday, we breached that subject, and I breach it very often with our folks. Uh, Make it very clear that every single person that walks in the door of our church is welcome and uh, we'll love them, we'll help them, but we absolutely will not break our convictions when it comes to the biblical stand. So uh, there's barely a week goes by where I'm not addressing the transgender issue, the LGBTQI plus community. And again, I'm totally against that lifestyle. Why? Because the Bible's against it. We just read things from Romans chapter 1, which say it cannot happen. And if it does, we definitely can't endorse it. So the, the issue is, yes, we're not going to endorse it. We are going to vividly speak out against it. We're not shy about it. Uh, we're going to do it. And if we suffer persecution because of it, so be it. But on the other hand, every single person that decides to engage in that lifestyle, they are very welcome at our church, but we are there to help them, not to endorse them or condone their sinful behavior. Dr. Richard Schmidt pastor, prophecy teacher, former sheriff of Milwaukee County, uh, on the program with us today, giving us some uh, encouragement as to how we as the body of Christ, and I do think persecution is encouragement. It helps us to uh, understand our walk with God and understand that we serve a sovereign God who is in control of everything. And as we get closer to the end times, we do know that that persecution is going to increase. Satan's going to increase it. And uh, we need to be prepared. Dr. Schmidt, I want to ask you, can you stand by and join with me on a look at the book on this program today where we're looking at Resurrection Sunday? Well, I'd love to do that. Thank you. Let's take a break. When we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. And then Dr. Schmidt and I will come back for a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We're getting ready for the Legacy Series, and we'll do that in just one moment. But this is that weekend that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. When we look at this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important event in history, everything hinges on it. Everything in the past points up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything in the future points back to it. 
So we're so very thankful and we want you to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this celebration of the life of Jesus. We should do it all year round. I want to remind you this next week, I will be in Peoria, Illinois at El Vista Baptist Church starting Saturday night, Sunday, two times, and Monday night. Love for you to come. Saturday night starts at 7, Sunday morning at 1030, and Sunday night and Monday night at 7 o'clock also. Come visit me. Come join with us at El Vista Baptist Church in Peoria, Illinois with Pastor Joy Watt. Well, on the Legacy Series this week, we continue a very important study on the future kingdom when Jesus Christ will rule and reign from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We need to go back to the first kingdom that the Lord set up some 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. The Lord put Adam and Eve in charge of that kingdom. We're going to show you how this all came together and in fact trace from that first kingdom to the satanic kingdom that would be set up by the great-grandson of Noah, a man named Nimrod. We need to start in Genesis chapter 2, Dr. Jimmy D. Young and the Legacy Series. Now go back to chapter 2, and there the Lord God is going to place Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Before he does that, before he brings Eve into existence, he has Adam go into the garden. And then he brings all the animals into the garden. This is chapter 2. And he allows Adam to name all the animals. Where do you think the animals got their names from? Adam named all the animals. You see, God was trying to show Adam his glory. His glory is made manifest in his creation. He showed him the stars, for example. Psalm 19. The heavens declare my glory. He said four words. Four words to bring stars and the galaxies out there into existence. And the stars also. He had put the sun up there. He had put the moon up there. And it's like he's walking away. This is the fourth day of creation. All of a sudden he says, oh yeah. And the stars also. And majestically the sky shows the glory. Now, Adam is able to see that, but he also wants him to see the creativeness in the animals that he brings into existence. I don't know what it would have been like. I would have loved to have been there with Adam in that garden at that time. He would have been, you know, standing there in the garden, and the Lord's going to bring all the animals in, and he's so excited about this that God's given him to do. And all of a sudden, he looks out, and down the aisle comes this great, big, wide, big old hipped type of animal. And Adam looks up and says, mm. I think that I will call that a hippopotamus. Big hips, you know. Anyway, he comes down the aisle. And then all of a sudden, God said, well, that's not bad. And God said, let me show you this one. So he names all these animals. Why does he do it? Because he's trying to show Adam, in everything I've created thus far, you have no helpmate. That's chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, what it says. Did you find a helpmate, Adam? No. Okay, I'm going to make you one. So he pulls a rib out of Adam and he makes woman. And there he then joins them together. And they become the leaders of this kingdom that the Lord has put in place. But where are they headquartered? In the Garden of Eden. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden 
before time in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight of every good, for good food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And so we have established now the pattern, and then we have the place where this kingdom is going to be set up and operating. Well, we know the story in chapter 3, what happens in chapter 3. Satan having fallen from uh, the relationship he had with the Lord. And most likely, let me just throw this into your computer. Why did Satan rebel? I would suggest maybe it might be because of the fact that when the Lord God created the earth, just before that, he created angels. That would be based upon the fact of the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 4 says, Where were you, Job, when I created the earth? And then in verse 7 it says, when the angels, sons of God, and the morning stars sang praise when he created the earth. So someplace in Genesis chapter 1, between verse 1, halfway through, and the end of verse 1, he creates angels. He created the heavens, created angels, and then he brings into existence the earth, and the angels sang for joy about what would happen. Now, remember, I tell you, everything has to be created in the six 24-hour days. That's what Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says. He did that, everything created, in six 24-hour days. Lucifer, if you look at chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel, was made the most prominent of all the angels that were created. He had a place of prominence. The Lord put him there himself. And then I believe when he brought man into existence... And on the sixth day of creation, Lucifer's watching and he sees that Adam and Eve are given dominion over all of creation. And so Lucifer is kind of displaced from his position of power and prominence. And so he rebels. Chapter 3, we see him slip into the garden. And there he has a conversation with Eve. And through confusing her, he brings her to a place where she will commit sin. And sin comes in, and now that dominion that had been given to Adam and Eve has slipped away from them. We continue on. We go through chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, chapter 5, a genealogy in the book of Genesis, chapters 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. The flood is over. All of humankind has been wiped out except for eight souls because of their relationship with angelic creatures as well. We come to chapter 9, the Lord appears to Noah, tells him to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Chapter 10, they start doing that. Go to chapter 10 just a moment. Let me show you now how, again, Satan is going to be actively involved in what's going to happen. Chapter 10 of the book of Genesis is the record of uh, Adam... Excuse me, of Noah and his three sons doing exactly what the Lord said to do, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. You'll remember that Ham had a son. His name was Cush. Cush had a son. His name was Nimrod. That's here in verse 8 of chapter 10. And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Verse 10. Now notice this. And the beginning of his kingdom, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel on the shores of the Euphrates River. In the plains of Shinar, it says here. That's in Mesopotamia, the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. On the plains of Shinar, which is modern-day Iraq, Babylon is established, and that is the beginning of the kingdom for Nimrod. What did he do? Chapter 11, verse 4 says, he built a great city 
in the face of Jehovah God who said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That was his command to Noah and his three sons. But Nimrod, great-grandson of Noah, says, in your face, God, I'm going to establish my kingdom. And so Satan comes along, gets inside and controlling Nimrod, has him go against God and establishes a kingdom in contradiction to Lord, the Lord's plan for the kingdom. We could go on and we could trace throughout the entire Bible how satanic rulers have controlled kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms, of course, of the Gentile world, uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, controlled by satanically controlled men in the leadership roles of these different kingdoms. And ultimately, the Lord's going to bring down the Gentile world powers. One of the reasons for the tribulation period is to bring an end to Gentile world powers. It says in the book of Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles would be that period of time when the Gentile world powers are ruling over this earth from uh, during that seven-year tribulation period. So we could trace through the satanic kingdoms that have been put in place. In fact, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he offered him, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. That means he's the king. He's the ruler. He's in charge of this world today under, of course, the sovereignty of Almighty God. Well, that's the plan for the kingdom that the Lord put in place, the pattern and the place where it's supposed to be headquartered. Go with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and let me show you now the promise, God's promise to a people, God's kingdom people. Who is it going to be that will receive this kingdom? Who is it going to be that will be the recipient of God's promise to give a kingdom uh, to this world? The book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the record of the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant made with King David for the purpose of giving him a promise that there would be a temple in the city of Jerusalem and one of his descendants would rule and reign from the throne in that temple. In chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, uh, David, king of all of Israel, having served as king of only Judah for seven years in Hebron, and then the other tribal leaders make him king of all of Israel. He comes and selects a neutral city. He selects a Jebusite stronghold between Benjamin and Judah. It's a place called Jerusalem, was owned by the Jebusites. His mighty men took over and captured it. In chapter 5, it becomes the political capital of the Jewish people. That was 3,000 years ago. In chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant that had been away from the Jewish people for over 350 years. He brings that into uh, Jerusalem, and he sets up the spiritual capital for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. He wants to build a permanent worship center. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was traveling, of course, and that was the transportable worship center when they would put up the tabernacle. Paul, uh, uh, John, excuse me, David puts up a, a, a tabernacle in Jerusalem for the purpose of housing the tabernacle. And then he decides he would like to build a permanent worship center, a temple. Because of sin, he's not allowed to do that. But the Lord comes and lets King David know in one of the four covenants, the promises that are unconditional given to the Jewish people, that this would happen one day. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel, verse 10. 
Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they, they, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And so he's committing to King David, I'm going to put up a permanent place of worship, and that as we know, would be the city of Jerusalem. He talks about the first installment of this promise being taken care of by his son Solomon. Look here in verse 12. And when the day, thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which will proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom referring to Solomon, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's going to be a kingdom forever that will come from the bowels of King David through his son Solomon, who fulfills the first installment of it. Look at verse 16. And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. The future kingdom that Jesus Christ rules and reigns from on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is going to be the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but also the fulfillment of the promise that God made to King David 3,000 years ago. The Davidic covenant cannot be broken or unfulfilled. God made that promise, and a promise-keeping God also gives you and me the assurance that he will keep his promises to us of everlasting life through his Son, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for these promises. Next week, we'll continue our study on the future kingdom when Jesus Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years here on the earth. This is a very important study, especially in light of the fact that many today believe that kingdom is already in place. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Richard Schmidt will be with me as we take a look at the book on this special Resurrection Day program. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Conflict soars today in Israel as the National Defense trades rocket fire with Hamas terrorists. Hundreds of Palestinians armed with clubs and fireworks barricaded themselves in Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque as Passover began. Israeli police detained 350 agitators. Uncharted Ministries' Tom Doyle says believers face pressure on all sides as Ramadan, Passover, and Good Friday overlap. Pray Christians can remember the Lord's sacrifice and resurrection in peace this weekend. Meanwhile, tension simmers just below the surface in Kenya. Anti-government protests injured more than 400 people in the last two weeks and killed three. A fourth year of drought means crops and livestock are failing, but believers can't buy food in the market because it's too expensive. Kenya Hope recently increased its food aid to local churches. Pray for perseverance. Believers continue gospel work even though conditions keep getting worse. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. 
This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This program today is uh, right before Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, really the most important event in all of history. Everything in the past pointed to this event. Everything in the future will point back to it. So it is a very important event that we talk about. Well, I invited back to our, our a look at the book segment, uh, Dr. Richard Schmidt, who was on with us earlier. And Dr. Schmidt, I'm faced, and and a lot of people always uh, send questions in, and uh, as I talk to people in different areas, I've always come up with questions. Let me just throw these out to you. Here are questions that people are always asking. Have you ever been in the depths of despair crying out for deliverance, like at that point where you really don't have any hope? Where do you look for strength and comfort when facing difficulties? And then what is the importance of the resurrection of Jesus to you? What would you say to folks? Well, when we look at the biblical narrative regarding the resurrection of Christ, it's very interesting because in Matthew chapter 28, we have Mary Magdalene and Mary the uh, uh, coming to the tomb and they're just, they're in despair. Their hope is gone. They believe that, uh, they understand that Jesus was crucified and that he's uh, he was dead, but they come there and instead of doing and looking for the resurrection of Jesus, they're actually there and they're in despair. They're mm-hmm. hopeless. It's like, uh, where's Jesus at? They've mm-hmm. stolen his body. What's very interesting is that Jesus spent time with his disciples, with the Marys and others, and yet the Bible makes it very clear in John chapter 20, verse 9, they didn't understand. Mm. What I find also very interesting is the, the Jewish priests and elders and scribes, they actually understood at least to a, a, a degree that Jesus claimed at least that he would be resurrected after three days. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 65, it tells us that the Jewish leaders come to uh, the Romans and beg them to put a guard out there <laughs> to make sure that Jesus can't get away. So it's very interesting that you have this bifurcation here, that God's people actually were the ones that doubted more than the unbelievers. So the question comes, when we look at the resurrection, which is the most important event, I believe, that's ever taken place in history, uh, without the resurrection of Christ, we're still dead in our sins. Mm. So the interesting thing then, again, let's go back to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 5, and the angel makes the announcement to the ladies at the tomb. And what does he say? But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. I love that. Jesus made it very clear to them that one day he would rise from the dead 
and why did all this take place? What's the importance of the resurrection? The importance of it is that every single one of us is born in sin. Every single one's a sinner, deserving of eternal punishment in the lake of fire, Revelation 21.8. But the great news is that Jesus Christ, yes, he was crucified, a horrible death that he had to endure. Why? To pay for the sins of all mankind. And what did he do? He had to die, and he willingly gave his life on the cross. He was buried, and three days later, what takes place? Well, just as the angel announced to these ladies, he is risen just as he said. That is the greatest news ever given to mankind. So the the issue then remains, what do we look at when we think of the resurrection of Christ? I, I know uh, on Friday there are the churches all across the country were filled with people going mm-hmm. to what are known as Good Friday okay. services. But how many of those people truly know that if they died, they go to heaven? Boy, the answer is in this, and I, I'll close with this comment. The Bible guarantees that those who place their faith in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and literally put their faith and trust in him. The resurrection guarantees, as Jesus is the first resurrection, that one day they'll go to heaven. Two verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, God's free unmerited gift, are you saved, saved from sin, saved from the penalty of sin. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of our works, lest any person should boast. We praise God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have within us. And as we look at this, Dr. Schmidt, I always like to look forward. You know, we've talked about the resurrection of Christ, and it's important that we as believers carry that message on. God could have uh, arranged the stars in the heaven to spell out, you must be born again. He could have made the trees cry out, but instead he chose us. How important is it for us today as believers to carry that message forward? Well, it's absolutely imperative. God chose to use women and men who know Christ to spread his message. He could have done it on his own, as you said, but he chose to use God's people instead. One verse spells it out perfectly, Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, where the Apostle Paul gives us the message that we are, every single Christian, not just pastors, not just missionaries, not just people in Christian work, every single Christian is God's ambassador to get that message out. So he's given us a high calling. If you placed your faith and trust in Christ, God encourages you, let's get out there and tell the greatest news ever given to mankind that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Luke 19.10. Amen. By all means, celebrate Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. Christ's resurrection is something that should be celebrated every day, not just once a year. At the same time, if we choose to celebrate Easter Sunday, we should not allow the fun and games to distract our attention from what the day should truly be about and the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that his resurrection demonstrates that we can indeed be promised an eternal home in heaven by receiving Jesus as our Savior. Dr. Schmidt, thanks for joining with me today and we look forward to having you on the program again. Well, thank you so much for having me. God bless. Yes, and looking at everything that we have seen today, folks, I've got to remind you, 
just looking at current events helps us to understand the times on which we're living. And it can't be too far away. The rapture of the church could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.